Hey, 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 guys. Welcome to Building This Community. This is your city business and policy development podcast. We're your hosts, Luke Patrick and Andrew Klump. Welcome to this week's episode of Building This Community. Our guest today is Adam Eland, who is the uh, former Kentucky State Auditor, who previously ran for governor, as well as founder for of Eland Strategic Ventures and Eland Renewables. Adam, how are you? Man, I'm great. It's snowy this morning in Lexington, but I'm glad to be with y'all. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate you stopping in, man. Yeah, man. So... I gave a little bit of your background, but can you just kind of tell us a little bit about your career and what you're doing now? Yeah, I've had a I've had a pretty varied career for a guy who's still in his you know mid forties, a relatively young guy. I uh, had an extensive career in in business and government. I I uh, worked my way through UK as an assistant to Paul Patton when he was lieutenant governor, and then ran for governor and became an aide to the governor when he won and. After that, I left and was an executive at the Lexington Chamber of Commerce, worked for, on the executive team of a large company based here in Lexington, uh, went back, got called back into governor, government when my friend Steve Bashir was elected governor. I became uh, his chief of staff and served there for uh, two and a half years before stepping out to run for state auditor, where I was the taxpayer watchdog for four years. And then... I uh, came in and founded a business consultancy that became consumed with renewable energy and, and found itself in a very special place in the renewable energy transition. And we, we took what we'd learned as a result of all of that and, and ran a, a, a really aggressive campaign for governor uh, focused on uh, trying to convince the state that the future is brighter than the past. Um, we got in a little late, were unsuccessful, but I, we got to run the kind of ideas-based future-looking campaign we wanted to do. And, um, and I returned to my practice where we've now got, uh, we've founded Edlin Renewables, which has a portfolio of more than a dozen projects in seven states, capital investment of about $2 billion, and the potential to, you know, bring, uh, to leverage new energy for a new American dream. And, and the mission of my company, very simply, is to bring the promise of renewable energy to the forgotten places of America. And we're doing that in some pretty compelling places like Appalachia. Well, I, I think that's honestly super impressive. I've followed the career for a long time now, but can you maybe explain uh, the goals you have when you, you founded both uh, Edelin Strategic Ventures and, and Edelin Renewables? Yeah, man, that's a, that is a great question. You know, listen, and I'm a capitalist, and, and it's become unpopular in some quarters to say that, but I absolutely believe in the ability of the free market to create opportunity for people. And, you know, I, I think a useful comparison point here is our project in Martin County, which is beginning to get a lot of attention, reflects a quarter of a billion dollar capital investment in one of the poorest counties in the United States. This site is literally a handful of miles away from where Lyndon Johnson launched the war on poverty. And, and while that was incredibly important and provided a lifeline for a lot of folks, let's not confuse uh, survival with thriving. And certainly facilitating a capital flow of $250 million into Martin County is something I couldn't have done as governor. So I'm passionate about the ability to leverage all the innovation and the creativity and the grit and the hard work of entrepreneurs for the benefit of local communities. And, and Luke, to your point, you know, a major focus of ours is 
what we call conscious capitalism. We've, we've literally trademarked the phrase social impact solar because what makes us different is that we leverage the enormous capital investment in each one of these projects for the real benefit of the local community from making sure that locals uh, have preference in job hiring, that making sure the folks that we are able to hire are able to leave that project with an academic certification as a result of our partnership with the community and technical college system, you know, making sure that local contractors get the opportunity to work on these projects. That really is our focus because my frustration in Kentucky is, you know, we are, we are brilliant in, in moments, right? I mean, we're, we're one of the first state, we're the first state in the South to pass a comprehensive civil rights law. Great. We were the first state in the country to declare our entire system of, uh, of education, K through 12, unconstitutional. And we built back one on the premise that all kids can learn and learn at high levels. We were among the first in the country to scrap a system of community and technical education and build one back married on the needs of the private sector. We were one of the first states in the country to adopt the Medicaid expansion. Those are all brilliant moments. The problem is in between, we just sort of languish. And we can't rely on government to do everything. And, and if Kentucky in, in the South, and Appalachia are gonna be what they ought to be. We've got to invest in people and we've got to build tomorrow's economy rather than today's. And so the themes that have always uh, sort of served as the linchpin of my founding beliefs in the private sector translated nicely to the, to, in, in the public sector, translated to the private sector. And the great thing about the private sector is, and in, in one of the things I love about it is, is that effort generally equals outcome which after 20 years in government and politics, I can tell you isn't always the case. On the <laughs> so I guess setting aside the, the political aspects, which I, I know must be tough for somebody that has spent a large part of their career in politics, but sure. do you, what do you think, do you think Kentucky has the necessary elements to become a major renewable energy producer? Like, do we have, you know, enough sunlight for solar? Do we have enough waterways for hydroelectric? Do we have the tools here to actually become a force in renewables like we did were in coal? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the first is we, we can't buy into the narrative of the fossil fuel dinosaurs that uh, that solar works everywhere. There's literally not a square mile in America where solar doesn't work. And that's largely a response to the innovation we've seen in the technology. I mean, these these uh, solar projects, uh, these solar panels have double digit increases in efficiency every couple of years. It's remarkable. So solar can work anywhere. Um, we, we have an incredibly entrepreneurial culture, fellas. You know, I, I, I point out to people all the time, in, cult in cultures best defined by scarcity, economic scarcity, people become really good at just getting by. That's the inherent, that, that's, the, that's in the DNA of being an entrepreneur. And so we have lots of folks and you just need to look around. I mean, not on the ideological scale, but look what's happening in the entrepreneurial community. You've got, you know, my friend, Jonathan Webb, who is, is brought, you know, App Harvest to Kentucky. He and I sort of incubated each other's ideas a long time ago, and he's had incredible grit. And now we've got like the ninth largest building on the planet in Moorhead, Kentucky, growing tomatoes. That's a very big deal. You know, my friend, Nate 
Morris, who, who came up in Republican politics, founded Rubicon, which is doing amazing things in the uh, in the waste space. Talk about a guy disrupting a traditional industry. I mean, garbage collection is one of the one of the oldest industries on the planet and, and doing great things. And of course, my friend Gil Holland revitalizing communities in Louisville and, and said, you know, done amazing things and says, well, if that's not enough, I'm going to go put a brewery in Harlan. I mean, th- there are lots of people like you guys who are doing really cool stuff. Here's the problem. These things are happening in spite of government, not because of them. And that's not a criticism of anybody in government. It's just our culture here doesn't demand high expectations. So the people who are really trying to run the score up, the folks who are really trying to do innovative things, who are, whether it's a moonshot, like putting, you know, a two and a half, two and a $250 million solar array on a mountaintop removal site in Eastern Kentucky, or uh, trying to make Kentucky an agritech center, these are really big, important things. And so what we need to do is harness the, the know-how, the skill, the grit uh, of the folks in the, in the private sector who are making this happen every day, because there's some exciting things going on. Well, I, I wanted to talk for a second about the actual like, kind of geography or topography in Kentucky and how that might play a role. Uh, the one thing I had in mind was, and, and you've seen it gaining steam in, in the public dialogue lately, is this pump storage hydroelectricity. Because I guess right. one of the big issues in renewables is energy storage, you know, because yep. you can create excess capacity in your peak production hours, but you need to kind of ha- have the ability to store that for, for later when, uh, you know, you're not at peak production. And and we've seen these kind of like water batteries get a lot of press lately. Do you think that's something that we could see implemented here in Kentucky? So that's really expensive. And what, what you're describing is exactly right, man. The, the, the issue with renewable energy is that it is intermittent, right? The sun, sun shines during the day and the wind tends to be at its highest at night. And so what we need are smoothing technologies that help, uh, help these, these things offset each other. Um, that's coming. The battery is the holy grail. No doubt, guys, it's going to occur in our lifetimes. And I want people to think about what this means. When we democratize power production uh, and we have a battery that enables us to, at a large scale, store the power that is produced renewably, this is going to change the world. And it's really exciting and it will happen. The question is, what do we do between now and then? Because only fools bet against the United States or innovation. We're, we're going to get this. I promise this is going to happen. The question is whether it's going to be an American company or the Chinese government who gets there first. But this is really this is the space race of our age and people need to think about solar panels as the crude oil of our time. And this is a really big, important fight. I mean, uh, how long can we live with the fact that our, our biggest competitor, some would say enemy in China is produces now 70% of the panels on the planet. That's a real problem. It's a national security problem in addition to an economic security issue. You know, so fellas, the question is, you know, how do, how do we, uh, bridge the gap between where we are and where we know that the holy grail of, of battery technology is going to be fixed. And there are there are ideas like water storage, which essentially uses renewable energy to pump that water up a hill and then allows it as it comes down to generate energy again. Um, yeah, it's happening. There are lots of folks do it, trying it. Um, I think there's some folks who are actually doing it at utility scale, particularly in Europe. Uh, but it's really expensive. And so that's sort of the offsetting spot about where we are. And you hear, you know, just be real candid. You hear a lot of 
like the lie that's being told right now that Texas fell off, you know, that the grid in Texas collapsed because the because the wind turbines froze. That's insane. I mean, certainly it, it was a contributor to it, but you don't have to. I mean, do a Google of winter um, uh, wind turbines and you'll see in places like Scandinavia and Canada, these things have no problem turning around. The issue is that Texas is the only state in the country with its own energy market. It's called ERCOT. It's, it was terribly mismanaged, and the reason they've got rolling blackouts and people without power is because that system is mismanaged. It doesn't have a thing in the world to do with renewables. If you look at a power outage, outage map of the United States yesterday, it's literally Texas and Appalachia. And we burn a lot of coal in Appalachia and still have a lot of people without power. So, you know, it's not just about it's about being welcoming about new technologies. It's about understanding that we all have a role in driving innovation. The world's just not flat anymore. You know, I've, I've got almost all of my partners in our in our coal to solar practice are coal companies who understand that the world has changed and and our government leaders and you know opinion leaders need to understand that the renewable energy revolution is here it will not slacken it it will only hasten and it's going to change the way we live our lives i mean you know they're going to be a hell of a lot more people who over the next 5 years buy electric cars than think they're going to buy electric cars. I mean, this is a this is a huge deal, and we've got a decision to make. We're either going to tack our sails to benefit from this transition, the shifting winds of this new economy, or we're going to get run over by these market forces. And to me, that's a no-brainer. Uh, yeah. Uh, so it, I guess talking about this changing landscape of, of you know renewable energies, do you think? Uh, getting back into that kind of uh, what you do best uh, a question, like should the different regions focus on, on like what uh, their geography dictates? Should should we should regions in you know the Southwest lean into solar, yep. whereas maybe the Midwest into wind? And and if so, like what is Kentucky's uh, niche in the renewable sector? So Kentucky's niche is going to be. Um, coal to solar projects and fellas it's becoming increasingly difficult to get these large-scale utility projects uh, through planning and zoning in communities that are predominantly agricultural it really is difficult and, and here in central kentucky we've had there have been several that have been shot down by lo local planning and zoning commissions the great thing about and it's because people don't want to look at them and listen i, I get that I, I i get that but i also want people to understand Saving the planet is an existential crisis, and we're all going to have to make some sort of sacrifices. The fact of the matter is, no matter where you live in populated America, in 10 years, you're going to be within 30 minutes of a utility-scale solar site. That's just a reality. But understanding that sensitivity provides us an opportunity to reimagine and rethink the economy of our coal communities, because what you get with these mountaintop removal sites, and guys, there's a million acres of these in, in, in central Appalachia. You know, we, we, there, there are vast expanses that are flat. They have proximate access to really great uh, transmission and distribution infrastructure. A lot of people don't realize that it took a lot of power to power the coal industry. And so that infrastructure is there. We don't have any of the planning and zoning sensitivities that you have when you turn a coal field into a project. And so this is a big opportunity. The issue is that um, it's more expensive. As you can imagine, the engineering and geotech issues at 2,000 feet 
uh, are a lot different than they are in an agricultural space. Um, they are more expensive to engineer and produce. Uh, but what we have found is that off-takers, these very large companies that buy the power in order to meet their sustainability goals, you see them on television every night. People, Companies like Facebook and Amazon and Google and Apple and, Te and Toyota and Walmart and Anheuser-Busch and almost the entirety of the Fortune 500 now have corporate sustainability goals. And a big, the big vehicle for which they accomplish those goals of being net carbon zero or 100% renewably powered is that they buy the power produced at these utility scale solar sites like the ones I'm working on. And so we have a big opportunity in those areas uh, in Kentucky. Uh, the sun is really abundant in, in Western Kentucky. Uh, the issue there is that you're in a different energy market. Uh, Eastern Kentucky is fortunate to be in what's called the, uh, the PJM, the Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland market, which stretches from just below the New York border through the mid-Atlantic states. Uh, into Virginia, uh, through central Appalachia, and out to Chicago. It's the world's largest energy market. It has far more demand than supply. Um, we can get our solar projects in there and, and still have them competitive. Western Kentucky, we're still trying to figure it out. It's in the MISO market. Um, there's, a little, there's a lot less demand in that market. And so our projects really do have to be more cost competitive, but we're getting there. So that, that's Kentucky's future. Um, biomass is also a big opportunity for us as well. Hydro is an important opportunity, um, but we're not a high wind state, believe it or not. But, you know, 100 miles to our north in West Virginia, they've got an abundant wind uh, feedstock. So you're right. It, it is going to be specifically tailored solutions that, that uh, suit the country. But we're already as a result of the natural gas revolution in this, in, that happened. I mean, 20 years ago, nobody knew that the United States was the Saudi Arabia of natural gas, and we really are. And we are already um, energy independent, which is an incredibly important economic and national security goal, and it's one that I applaud. Now we've got to be very strategic about how we make the shift uh, and use natural gas as a bridge to getting us to a renewably powered economy, and we're well on our way. And if we do this right, Kentucky can be at the center of this. And so, you know, fellas, the issue for me is it, it, it all comes down to one question, particularly the work we're doing in Appalachia, is do you believe that the very people who powered the industrial development of this country for 100 years, do you believe they have a place in the economy of the next 100 years? And if you don't, you're a jerk. But if you do, that means we've got to double down and make sure these cola solar projects that I'm working on can pencil and work. And we believe we've cracked the code. We believe we've successfully uh, uh, got it this engineered properly that when we go to construction next year, we're 100% sure that it's going to work. But leadership makes the difference. The governor of Virginia just a couple of weeks ago, fellas, announced that he's going to use Virginia's abandoned mine land grant money. These are dollars that are made available from from uh, the bonds that have been released as a result of coal companies going bankrupt, the governor of Virginia is going to use that power to incent solar developers to turn Southwest Virginia coal communities into a new energy capital. That is a big damn deal. And we ought to be doing it. We ought to do it in Kentucky. The governor of, of, of Ohio ought to do it for southeastern Ohio. Virginia needs to be all over this. Pennsylvania needs to be all over this. That's leading from the front, and it makes a difference. So I think that's an important, uh, that last part that you talked about. Uh, I want to move into that a little bit. So I think, at least from the national perspective, we've seen 
uh, I think more liberal democratic leaders go back and forth on how they necessarily address the issue of transitioning from coal to renewable. Some is much more combative right. and others are much more what you're talking about, which I think is, is the better approach, which is we have to find a place for these people in the future. What is you know, the place for people in coal country? What is their role in getting moving us towards the renewable energy that we so, need? So when you look at this, that's an awesome question. So when you look at this, let's call it, let's look at this at the macroeconomic level and let's describe the attributes of coal miners, okay? These are people who bust their ass. This is hard damn work. These are people who skin their knuckles, literally getting on their knees to scrape coal out or you know, running major uh, equipment on a strip job. These are folks who show up for work every day. They're people who can pass a drug test. They're, co they're collaborative by nature. Mining is all about working in a team. And they're problem solvers. A mile and a half into the earth, fellas, you really can't call anybody to solve a problem. Those skill sets are one that you would want in any industry, right? And so it's incredibly transferable to what we're trying to do in renewable energy, particularly in solar development. Now, there, this is solar development, let me say from the outset, it's not a panacea, but our project in Martin County is going to create about $330 an hour jobs in the construction phase, which will be 12 to 18 months for these out-of-work miners. And because we formed such a tight relationship with the community and technical college system, these guys are gonna leave with an academic credential at the end of this period that says that they're certified in utility scale solar installation. That is a huge deal. And what it means is we're building, my company is building a pipeline of projects across Appalachia, where our hope is that we can generate long-term employment. Now, everybody in rural America drives for work, fellas. It's just a reality, right? So if we can, you know, do this in Martin County and then have Floyd and Perry County come up behind it, or, you know, or the projects we're working on in, in Southwest Virginia or Southeastern Ohio, and, and now about to break into in West Virginia, we can create an abundance of opportunities that pay really good uh, wages, um, but we gotta have we gotta have some help. You know, I'm going first here. This is a moonshot, and we're we're confident that it's going to work. But but I call it the solar coaster for a reason. I mean, this thing has lived and died a thousand deaths, and we have got to get the public's base on the side of innovation and entrepreneurship. And that means embracing renewable energy. Kentucky doesn't have a renewable energy standard and it's in it, it's in its energy portfolio. That is that's quite literally nuts. I mean that's a that is a that's like communicating to the world, hey, we're not interested in uh, new economy economic development. Jonathan Webb will tell you that the ability to expand app harvest footprint in Kentucky is limited because of our because of our public officials either hostility or lack of awareness about renewable energy and lack of a commitment to making Kentucky more of a renewable energy center. You know, the, we, we fight here about the economic development strategy of the 70s and 80s, which is hey, come to Kentucky because taxes are low because we don't invest in education or healthcare like we should. Uh, come to Kentucky. We've got these great protections in place. So the worker who gets hurt on the on the on the line can't sue you. Come to Kentucky and, and you know, we've underfunded a whole lot of things. And, and, you know, a new economy company says, wait a minute, what you're telling me is that you haven't invested in quality of life. 
Um, your workforce isn't adequately prepared for the opportunities of the future. And I'm supposed to come there because the taxes are low and you don't offer renewable energy. You're, we're off. We're literally off the grid for those kind of opportunities. And that is just straight talk. People don't want to hear it, but our, our, our leaders, our, you know, I say this as a former chamber of commerce executive guys, they, they, we got to get our head out of the sand. I mean, this is insane. We've got an economic development strategy that says, come to Kentucky. We've got a right to work law. And meanwhile, big tech is looking around saying, well, we don't take pride in abusing our workers. So that really wouldn't benefit us. I mean, it, it, it makes us sound like knuckle dragging rubes. And so, and this is where we are. And so renewable energy is a big opportunity to change that and recognize that in the new economy, the pillars of modern economic development are healthy, educated workforce, access to renewable energy and an entrepreneurial culture and a simplified tax code. That's, those, that's it, right? And so we've chosen to go a different direction. It's frustrating, but we've got entrepreneurs who are taking Kentucky by dent of their resolve and effort uh, in a different direction. And listen, I'm, I'm proud to be one of them, but there are some really, there's some folks out there who are just kicking ass in, in bringing Kentucky into the 21st century, whether our, our electeds want to take us there or not. So one, one thing that I, I think is always a very important question is, do we think that these renewable energy jobs create viable alternatives to the coal industry um, going like perpetually, or sure. these, or, or are these going to be more temporary jobs, you know, like when the trans, the transcontinental railroad was made or when the highway system was built, like those were big booms in the economy, but they were temporary. They were waning. Is, is renewable a similar facet or do you see these jobs being more long-term? Renewables are, are renewables are foundational. Okay. And so let, let's talk about Appalachia. Um, it, as in any resource focused economy and culture, there is a failure to diversify. And that's not just about Appalachia. Y'all look at, look at Saudi Arabia, right? So, so awash in oil money that, you know, they haven't begun to diversify until the last 10 years. They've been a kingdom for 70 or 80, right? You know, Russia is a, is a petro uh, state and the Russian economy hasn't fully developed because they, because when you're so mineral rich, it, it provides a disincentive to diversify your economy. Um, we've now learned the hard way that you that that you have to do it. And this is what this is an example of something, fellas, that really pisses me off uh, because we can get it right because we have gotten it right. I, I am from Meade County, Kentucky, which is about an hour southwest of Louisville. My family grew tobacco in Kentucky for over a hundred years. I grew up in the tobacco patch. I hated every minute of it. It's the worst work I've ever done, but it provided a very nice sort of middle-class living for my family. And when uh, the tobacco farmers and our elected leaders understood that there was no future in it because it causes cancer, um, there was a focus to diversify. And leaders like Paul Patton in, in Kentucky and Jim Hunt and, yes, uh, Mitch McConnell and Wendell Ford and all the coal state guys got together. They forced a master settlement agreement with the cigarette companies. They took the proceeds from that, gave them to the farmers to diversify their effort. And now 25 years later, gate farm receipts in Kentucky and across all of the tobacco states is dramatically up. My old man is, de is, is demonstrably economically better off than he was when he, before he took the tobacco bailout. 
that's an example of us getting it right. But what do we do in the coal fields? Not a damn thing. We said, if you elect someone other than Barack Obama president, the coal jobs will come back. This has to do with regulation. And um, we did all those things, and they're not back. Um, more coal-burning facilities closed under four years of Donald Trump than eight years of Barack Obama. That is a fact. And this is not a government force. It is a market force, because nobody under the age of 40 uh, doesn't believe in climate change. Even the conservative kids are, uh, are, are environmentally sensitive. And so what this means is it's a market force, and that's what's driving this. You think BlackRock or the, or, or the street is embracing ESG as a, and conscious capitalism as an ethos because it loses some money. You're nuts. They're doing this because they understand it's the new market reality, and young people in particular who now dominate the, the marketplace. I mean, the millennials are the largest generation in the history of this country, and the one behind them is bigger than mine, the Xers. And they're environmentally conscious, they're value-driven, and whether it's a chicken sandwich or a Camry, they're not gonna make a they're not gonna make a purchase that doesn't reflect their values. And I, for one, think that's fantastic. But what it means is we've got to change the way we do business to either benefit from these new market forces or to utterly be crushed by them. So back to your point, renewable energy is foundational. If you want to draw a data center, which are, you know, everybody thinks the cloud is this ethereal place. It's not. The cloud is a the cloud is a huge warehouse somewhere. Matter of fact, it's it's hundreds, if not thousands, of these warehouses. That are, that are three or four stories tall, that are stacked with servers and air conditioned to 55 degrees, populated by people who make 100 grand a year serving them. You can't get one of those without a renewable energy portfolio because these guys aren't going to burn fossils to power them, period. And so we can either argue with the people who own opportunity and have the resources to spread it to us, or we can accommodate them. And I think this is one where accommodation makes sense. If you don't make peace with the future, you're going to be destroyed by it. That's where we are. That's the decision we've got to make. And regrettably, we're not making it as quickly as we should. So I think that brings us back, you know, full circle to, you know, actual government policy. You know, you talked about how private the private sector is doing this despite public current public policy, at least in Kentucky. And, you know, you've had issues with local planning commissions. Where should the policy for renewables be at whether the local state or, or federal level or some kind of. And Andrew, the answer is all of the above, but honestly, I would settle right now for them just getting out of our way. Um, one of the things that's really exciting, I, I brought in a, um, I'm at the stage in my own company, and I know you all are entrepreneurs and, and love to be tuned into the entrepreneurial space. You know, I'm, I'm at the difficult stage in my company where we're trying to scale. I mean, we're the proverbial dog that caught the truck, right? And so I brought in a really talented consultant to look at our stuff. Um, and he just said, Adam, you need to double your projections. This is, this is the way the world's going. You're on to something. Keeping up is going to be tough. And one of the things that is really positive in my space is the leadership of the Biden administration. I mean, uh, President Biden gave a speech a couple of weeks ago where he said, we're doubling down on a renewable energy future. We're going to modernize um, the grid, which is incredibly important. Just ask the people in Texas this morning how important that is. Um, and we're going to do it in such a way as to not leave behind fossil fuel communities, oil, gas, and coal. And that's a really big deal. So the things that specifically can be done 
is the 30 is the same the same uh, advantages that are now built into law for the oil and gas and coal economies you know and things like uh, depreciation allowances we need those kind of things uh, memorialized in law to benefit renewables let's make the 30 percent uh, tax cut uh, cr uh, permanent um, let's give let's give developers the opportunity of taking a cash grant and being able to monetize that over the long term. Let's incentivize further these big companies that are literally driving uh, renewable energy demand. You know, it, it's a big deal, y'all, that in 20, you know, we, we Trump took us out of the Paris Accords, you know, which said we're going to hit our number by 2035. And the, and the free market in the United States just you know, just yawned. I mean, they, we stayed in. We had states like California and New York that stayed in, but almost all of the big companies said, no, we're, we had far more big corporations say, not only are we going to keep our 2035 goals, we're going to hasten them. That's a big deal. And, and so, you know, we just need government that understands that this is happening. Guys, this is, and I, I shout this from the rooftops, and what's awesome is everybody under the age of like 40 gets it. Right. Republican, Democrat, libertarian, everybody under the age of 40 gets it. People older or more traditionally trained, um, you know, sort of scratch their head. But the green energy transition is the biggest economic transition since the Internet. And it's the greatest opportunity to spread um, uh, to spread people having the ability to compete in a global economy that we've seen in, in at least since then. This is one of those rare pivot points in, uh, in history, global history, economic history, where communities that have fallen behind uh, have the opportunity to slingshot into the future. And we're not doing enough to, um, to accelerate uh, the readiness of our, of our local communities to do that. And it's a shame. We're going we're gonna to get there. But at the end of this, in 10 or 15 years, when, we, when, when people are really moving quickly in the future, if we look back and say, damn, we missed that opportunity, fellas, it could be another 50 or 100 years before technology and economic forces conspire to create an opportunity like this again. Uh, yeah, I, I, I totally agree and you know anytime i get the chance to discuss renewables i, I absolutely jump at the opportunity i love it i think it's something that more people should talk about more people should focus on but i we had one question we wanted to pose to you while we had you on here is is there any chance at another run for political office in your future so guys i you know i'm only 46 so i'm i'm still a young man in the political world right i mean our president is knocking on the door of 80 but guys I think, as you can tell from this interview, I'm having a hell of a lot of fun. I mean, this is really if 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 building a place for people who are have been left behind in the economic transition that we're living through isn't enough to get you out of bed in the morning, I don't know what is. And, you know, listen, I would have loved to have been governor. It was my life's ambition. It's something that I wanted to do since I was a boy. And I love this state. Um, but as governor, I could have never brought a quarter of a billion dollars to Martin County, right? And and the, and we're we're nowhere near stopping, guys. So, you know, I hope you'll have me back every once in a while, um, uh, so I can update you on our on our progress. I mean, we're over a dozen projects that are in development. Um, 
I can't keep up with what we've got. And so when, when people agree to um, invest, you know, a couple of billion dollars in projects in, in which you're involved with developing, you have to make certain commitments to folks. <laughs> and is, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not worth anywhere near a fraction of, you know, a quarter billion dollars. So I want to make these things happen. happen. I, I think this is where I'm going to be for the next 10 years. Uh, eight or 10 years for sure. And, you know, we'll figure it out. You never say never, but I think you all know, particularly you, Lucas, who followed my career. Um, I, I'm a man of action and I bore rather easily. So um, I'm going to be at this for a, for a long time because it's exciting uh, and impactful. And we're bringing the promise of renewable energy to the forgotten places of this country. But if it ever gets boring, I'll, I'll find something else to do. I, I do want to leave you with this. Um, I've spent a lot of my life trying to figure out what the meaning of life is and winning and losing and having as many defeats as I've had victories and ups and downs, personal and professional. Uh, the, the best thing I found is what, is what um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt said, and that is that the meaning of life is working hard at work worth doing. And I'm working very hard at really uh, something I believe is work worth doing. And, and as long as I can do that, I'm gonna, I'm, I will be fulfilled. Oh, that's a great one. I, lo I love that quote. I, uh, you mentioned the, the projects you, you've got going on with all of your multiple ventures. Is there anything specifically, you know, uh, through those ventures or in your personal life, any projects you want to promote? Yeah, well, I would just say, you know, watch this space, right? And we're going to, I'm going to, when, when COVID lifts, good Lord willing, uh, hopefully this summer, we're going to, we've got an announcement particularly relevant to Martin County that is going to be a very big deal. Uh, that is held up because of COVID. And it, it is, we've got a lot of forces coming together from all over the world. Um, but the truth is they just can't get here right now. It's not safe. And so when this lifts, we'll have some exciting announcements, but but watch what we're doing. I mean, we, we are in conversation. I, I was on a call yesterday about, uh, about expanding our company and our social impact mission to the tribal space in the Western United States. Now that could be really cool. Right. I mean, imagine the bookend of having done socially impactful renewable projects in coal country and then and then in uh, First Nations uh, communities. That's awesome. You know, I, I want to do uh, if I can figure it out, I want to do a project in, in inner city America in a big way, uh, because if, if this transition, listen, we got a lot of people who are struggling who are just dying, begging, praying for an opportunity. And we could leverage this really special moment to give them that opportunity. And I'm, I'm deeply fulfilled by this. It's, it's cool as hell. It's great work. I learn something every day. And, uh, you know, and I'm, and I'm glad folks like you are interested in helping us amplify uh, our story. Yeah. Yeah. We have had a blast having you on today. Before we can let you go, we like to ask all of our guests this same final question. Okay. Uh, if you could change one policy in Kentucky, what, what would it be? Oh, hell, do you got a day? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, you know, you guys, I know you paid attention to my campaign for governor. There, there were about a million. But if I had to pick one right now, and it's not just about the subject matter, it's about what it spiritually means. It is that we have got to give communities the ability to uh, have the local option on the sales tax. Um, power is concentrated in Frankfurt. Uh, we have a legislature that has never been as powerful as it is right now, but it's not one that has a sort of progressive view to what the future looks like. And I don't mean progressive in a political sense. I mean it in an economic sense. And so we've got to get power out of Frankfurt 
and disperse it to local communities and local communities need to be able to make decision-making um, through ballot initiatives about whether they want to, how they want to levy the sales tax for the benefit of local projects. This has been used to extreme effectiveness in some of the most conservative places in the United States. The local option sales tax literally took Oklahoma City from being a backwater to being one of the hottest middle-sized cities in America. And the problem we've got in Kentucky is too much power is centrally concentrated in Frankfurt. There's not enough power at the local level for communities like Louisville and Lexington and Paducah and, and everybody in between to make their own decisions about how they grow their own economy. So if I had one, that would be it. And it, it, it um, uh, I, I don't think it's moving where we are now. I also would love to, you know, one other, I think it's hard for anybody to read the papers and conclude that annual sessions of the legislature were a good idea. Um, I, I, I skew libertarian here. Um, it's, I think the Kentucky General Assembly and their behavior over the last couple of years is a pretty good, uh, makes a pretty good case study for me why we need a little less government in Kentucky and not more. Fair enough. Well, uh, and, and I couldn't I couldn't agree more with the local option sales. Act. I think what, what's happened in Oklahoma City is just the, the exact example of what cities across the country are, should or, or have been doing with, with that. And I'm with you. I think that change to an uh, every year legislature has not yielded the kind of dividends that they were expecting. No, I mean, the, the, the argument was that a board of directors should meet annually. I agree completely. But the, the issue we've got is that it, it, it's become a place that it hasn't professionalized the service of the legislature. It's, pro, it's professionalized the political climate. And so now you have dueling caucuses issuing talking points against each other every day, confusing, fighting with progress. And there's a there's a huge difference. And so, um, you know, I, I, listen, as my dad said in a, in a more colorful version, you can't put the manure back in the horse. I get it. Um, but we need to be more strategic in our decision-making in the state, and we need to understand that the future is coming whether we like it or not, and sometimes we have to make difficult decisions to make us relevant to those opportunities, and not enough of that is happening in my view right now. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this has been fantastic. We'll pick back up with our reaction segment after a word from our sponsor. That was another interesting uh, interview with Adam Edland. I thought he hit on something that we hit on routinely with our episodes, which is, you know, our state policies compared to what businesses are looking for. And I think it's interesting that we see, you know, Fortune 500 companies looking for renewable energies. And if we aren't focused on that as a state, it's going to be harder to attract Fortune 500 companies. And that's kind of that's even beyond some of the things that he's talked about, which is uh, you know, like employment or healthcare or, or other ideologies. Yeah, no, I, I I thought Adam said a lot that was pretty interesting, and and I wasn't kidding when I said he's a character that I've I've followed his career for mm -hmm. a long time now. Uh, he's a really impressive guy. Uh, for me, it was honestly his work in Martin County. Mm -hmm. That's something that ha has has stood out uh, since I was in high school. Honestly, I've had kind of a focus on it. Uh, for anybody that doesn't know, 
Martin County was the site of, uh, in 2000, of a massive coal slurry spill. And, and what coal slurry is, like in the coal cleaning process, they use a lot of really noxious chemicals, like hazardous chemicals to wash the worst toxins out of the coal so that when you burn it, it doesn't go into the air. But then it goes into this nasty mixture, mixture called slurry. And what they have to do is build these huge reservoirs uh, for them, like not don't think the size of a pool, think the size of like a small valley uh, mm -hmm. near the coal production facilities. And one of these in Martin County, they're all lined with plastic, but it happened to be over an abandoned coal mine. Uh, and it ruptured into the coal mine and flooded all of the major riverways in Martin County, uh, polluted the water, dumped mercury, heavy metals, all kinds of toxins. And and is actually the the focus of this week's uh, paper, uh, which is titled The EPA Actions in Post-Disaster Martin County, Kentucky, uh, An Analysis of Bureaucratic Slippage and Agency Recreancy. And what it does is lay out kind of the timeline of, of events and the story of how the people of Martin County were, were so severely marginalized in the cleanup efforts and, and uh honestly uh, denied information about what had happened mm -hmm. to their town and what had happened to their their watershed it just like highlights of of, of the paper uh, it, the epa sets up this unified command structure to try and uh, coordinate the entire government response to the disaster uh, but they end up housing it on the property of the coal manufacturer that was responsible for the accident in the first place you know so you're sending the wrong message yeah right it's unbelievable yeah, yeah. Uh, but then they ended up after uh, allowing the coal company to edit press releases for multiple government officials and and allowing them to be present in every uh, citizen town hall to address the the, the citizens. They they end up pursuing uh, charges under the Clean Water Act uh, rather than the Comprehensive Environmental Response uh, Liability and Compensation Act or CERCLA. But uh, the difference being the liability that the coal company would be under, under CERCLA, is substantially greater than under the Clean Water Act. Mm -hmm. But the people of Martin County, at least in their retelling, feel that the EPA chose in consultation with the coal company to pursue the lesser charge and kind of leave them hanging, you know, yeah. and and. and I feel like that matters uh, in a broader sense because, and the reason this paper was important, because the people of that part of Kentucky have for so long been marginalized. You know, it's it's the birthplace of the, of the company store. The coal industry has has mistreated that region for years and years. And to see Adam taking, I think he said almost a quarter of a billion dollars and putting it into that region, that is the type of leadership from the private sector that I'd like to couple with action from the government to try and drive innovation and growth in, in that part of the state. Well, I think what's important about this paper is that it provides a lot of context for what Adam is doing and that no matter what incident it is, whether it's in Martin County or whether it's the BP oil spill, these incidents happen and federal the federal government typically steps in and typically takes some of the burden off of these companies that are doing it. I mean, the same thing would happen if there's a nuclear power plant that has some sort of leakage, right? And I think that's kind of the argument constantly against nuclear, right, is the storage of the radioactive material. But if you're having 
you know, slurry that needs to be stored as well, that also poses an issue, maybe not as big of an issue, but still a big one. I mean, Martin County is still struggling with water, with getting clean water to this day. Oh, yeah. No. And cancer rates are, are greatly increased in the area, mm-hmm. you know, all kinds of, of bad uh, reactions. So, but I, I think that, again, the reason this is important is because we have to recognize that just because people outside of Appalachia may not necessarily feel the burden or the impact of these happenings, that it's still important. Yeah. You know, and so we have to continue to look for policies that, one, you know, people that live in a bigger city that, again, th- this doesn't impact their daily life. They still need to get closer to a renewable plan, but they all, we also can't forget about what's happening in Appalachia at the same time. And so what Adam is doing is a great step. It's I want to see what policies we can do to kind of further that. So one thing that has kind of come up recently and that Adam t- mentioned is the fact that a lot more people are going to be moving to EVs, electric vehicles. And that's in part because what, like Tesla is produced them. So now you're seeing traditional plants, you know, such as like Ford and GE are all starting to look towards making more electric vehicles. Well, now the state of Kentucky is looking at a new gas tax that, which is what pays for our roads, right? So every city gets a, a certain percentage of the tax from, you know, at, at the gas pump. And they're looking at increasing that and then also adding a tax to electric vehicles because they're not obviously not paying gas tax. So disincentivizing electric vehicle ownership throughout the state. Yeah, I go back and forth on this because I think it's fair because they aren't paying any type of tax and they're using the roads, which and there's a specific tax that pays for the roads. I can understand the logic, but it would still have that practical effect of making it more costly. Right. But and they're also but the tax is also going to raise gas prices and all throughout the state of Kentucky at the same time. So it's it's going to do both. Now, with that said, so, so I go back and forth and a lot of cities can't afford to pave their roads currently or maintain them currently without at least doing a substantial supplement from their general fund, which puts other economic strengths on the cities. But that just goes back to how do we want to model our cities? You know, is there enough emphasis on creating new modes of transportation or are we just going to continue to push towards sprawl? And the state of Kentucky has continued to push towards sprawl. And that just, I guess my whole point with this is that this is just every little facet of talking about the renewable energy game, you have to encompass every single other potential side effect. And so every time we put a policy it just, that just talks about like paying for our roads, I mean, that seems like an important infrastructural discussion, but there's an impact on renewable, like the renewable energy and our environment. So I think that's an interesting kind of caveat. The other thing that he mentioned is the local option sales tax is one thing he would like to to do. Yeah, I think we briefly mentioned that in the podcast in the past. But yeah, yeah can you explain it? Yeah. yeah, so again, that that's just the idea. And it's, it's interesting, too, because a lot of progressives support the local option sales tax, but it seems to be more of a regressive tax that conservatives that continue to push for a consumption-based tax push for. But with that said, it's essentially a 1% add-on to whatever the local sales tax is. And that then goes directly back to the city. That's been done really well with Oklahoma City and other places and really 
helped bolster a lot of mid-sized cities. So I go back and forth on that too, but I think there could be some positives and something like a place like Martin County could use that to help supplement the growing renewable energy space in Eastern Kentucky. Yeah. And I I mean, uh, we've seen Adam in the private sector start to make the investments. I think at least from the point of view of, of Kentucky, we need the the state government to step up and start taking those actions too. Because it seems like, uh, you know, Adam talked about bringing together a group of coal executives to kind of lobby the state mm-hmm. uh, for increased funding. And I think access to grants and access to, to the resources the government can provide are going to be essential to the rural parts of Kentucky that have so long depended on the coal industry, which, you know, also brings to mind the, the coal to solar programs that he was talking about, you know, converting mining operations or former mining operations into coal powered yeah. uh, utility scale operations or excuse me, solar powered utility scale operations is kind of a no brainer. I think it's a forward thinking direction for uh, our state to be headed in. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the other thing that we try to pin him down on, and I love Adam, but I don't think that he actually gave an answer on it, was like, where should the policy focus be? And I, I think he probably didn't give an answer because it probably needs to be at the federal, state, and local level. Yeah. Uh, one idea that I've kind of pushed around is why are local cities not holding public utilities accountable? So right now he was mentioning how, at least in the eastern eastern zone of – the electric grid, he can sell Appalachia's renewables to Fortune 500 companies that are trying to go all green. Yeah, how, how the state is is on two separate or connected to two separate power grids and the cost is, is different between them. Right. And, and yeah. so he's able to sell to Fortune 500 companies. So there's a market there because bigger companies that you may like, again, for GE are trying to go more green that maybe you wouldn't have thought we're going to try and go green 20 years ago. Now, with that said, so there's a market there. But the other aspect is the largest market still seems to be the residential and the consumers, right? So we don't have enough solar, you know, every home doesn't have solar, but public utilities are the ones that provide it. If cities are going to keep accepting rate increases from utility companies, the, the cities are going to have to start requiring a certain percentage of renewables to be uh, funding the electric grid from to, to the public utility. So I think the issue is we're not seeing the commitment from public utilities to renewable energies and the cities have to hold them accountable. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, that plays back into that, like requiring action on the state, local and federal level, mm-hmm. like you're, you're going to need to, to, galvanize the public to try and uh, motivate them to ask for to demand these kind of actions from their government you know and i mean uh, this is a policy podcast like these are the kinds of things that like we would like to to you know to educate people about so that they can go out and, and maybe try and affect that change in their communities yeah absolutely so all all of that to be said there's a lot of policies that can be going forward obviously you know people have pushed around you know, you know a carbon tax and everything from the federal level but i think it's important to start looking at this from the federal state and local levels um the last thing i just wanted to add was i thought it was interesting that adam didn't specifically bring up hydroelectric I know we talked a little bit about the pump storage hydroelectric where they pump the water up to the mountain and then whenever 
from solar energy and then whenever needed it gets trickled back down and through a turbine so that it can create energy instead of using a battery but kentucky has the second most navigable waterways behind alaska like it's surprising to me that we don't have a greater emphasis on hydroelectric power now maybe that's just it's not efficient enough i don't know but it's not like we're sitting here with just tons of lakes we're sitting here with navigable waterways like rivers that could be used yeah my assumption is like it it would probably be best to incorporate as many different avenues for like energy renewable energy Mm -hmm. production as possible and you know maybe there's somebody out there that that does have that that kind of investment in their portfolio like maybe it's just not adam yeah like i i'd I'd like to hope that there is somebody uh you know that's making those kinds of investments uh i I assume we have uh more than enough resources given the navigable waterways as you just mentioned but i I don't know man i I think uh, you just have to hope that those investments are being made and and try and do what you can to to lobby the government to you know invoke some action on their own yeah absolutely but again i think this just goes back to we have to have a commitment from both the public and private sector. And as of right now, I think the entire developed world is struggling with getting to that next stage or getting to the fully renewable stage because it's e- you could see a world where every single home has a solar panel on it, right? And where everybody's driving electric cars and then every uh, you know grid is powered by renewables, but it's just difficult to get there from where we currently are and trying to transition away from fossil fuels is the difficult aspect until the infrastructure is built. So, but I think that's just gonna have to be a coordinated effort between both the private and public sector. And it's gonna have to have buy-in from the general public and the general consumers. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. Well, anything else to add, Luke? No, I think that's it for me. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in, guys. Yeah, thanks a lot. As always, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining us on Building This Community. If you'd like any more information, you can follow us on Twitter at buildingthiscom, C-O-M, or you can follow Andrew at Andrew J. Klump. And you can also follow Luke at LMP43. Definitely subscribe, and we look forward to talking to you guys next week.